Welcome back, everyone, to the History of Art of Podcast, where we are covering The Silmarillion by J.R.R. Tolkien. We are your hosts. I'm Dean, and I'm accompanied by Eric Blair. And we have been working our way through The Silmarillion, and last time we left you with Chapter 7, uh, that is, of the Silmarils and the Unrest of the Noldor. And this week, we have the introduction of an exciting new character. Uh, we've appropriately titled this episode... Along came a spider. We follow right on the tails of the last episode, or the last chapter. Um, and Melkor is fleeing Valinor and headed north, or at least he appears to be. Um, but actually, he doubles back and heads south, so Orome and Tolgus will be misled, and they'll be seeking for him in the wrong place. Um, so he heads south to an area that the Valar have largely overlooked, uh, far south, and uh, there, Ungoliant makes her first appearance. Um, now, it says uh, that the elves did not know where she came from, but some have said that in ages long before, she descended from the darkness that lies about Arda, back when Melkor first looked down in envy upon the kingdom of Manwë, and that in the beginning, she was one of those that he corrupted to his service. That would make sense if he looked down and was just so pissed off and jealous and wanted everything that he just cried tears of anger and one of them became her. <laughs> yeah, she's like Athena springing from the head of Zeus. Like she seems to be born of envy and hatred in that moment that he looks down and feels that emotion. She springs into being. And then it's like, he sees her and goes, hey, we could be friends. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, but she disowned her master, uh, you know, Melkor, uh, desiring to be mistress of her own lust, taking all things to herself to feed her emptiness. She fled to the south, escaping the assaults of the Valar and the hunters of Orome. And uh, from there, she's been creeping slowly back north toward the light of the blessed realm, for she hungers for light and she hates it. And she lives in this ravine and takes the shape of a spider of monstrous form that weaves black webs in clefts of the mountains. She sucks up all the light that she can find and then spins it back out again in these dark nets of strangling gloom until no more light came to her abode and she was still famished. So Melkor comes to this place where she lives and he seeks her out and uh, he takes on the form again of the tyrant of Utumno. That was his fortress that was destroyed by the Valar. Uh, the form of a dark lord, tall and terrible. And that is the form that he is going to remain in from this point on. So there in the black shadows, beyond the sight of even Manwë in the highest halls, Melkor and Ungoliant plot revenge. Uh, when Ungoliant... A boy and a spider. <laughs> When Ungoliant understands the purpose of Melkor, she's torn because she does want to go through with the plan he's suggesting, but she's also like, we're going to take on the Valar and their, you know, in, in all of their power. Um, but uh, he, he finally convinces her 
He says, do as I bid. And if you hunger when all of this is done, then I will give you whatever your lust may demand with both hands. And saying that, he kind of screws himself later on. He doesn't realize it at the time. Um, so she weaves a cloak of darkness about them. And they set forth. And this cloak of darkness is almost like a black hole. It's an unlight in which things seem to be no more. Eyes cannot pierce it. It is void. Um, And then she slowly starts creating her webs, rope by rope, from cleft to cleft, from jutting rock to pinnacle of stone, ever climbing up and crawling up and clinging, until she reaches the the summit of Hjarmantir, which is the highest mountain in the south of Valinor. And this is far south of Teniquetil, where uh, Manwe and Varda live. And the Valar are not looking at this place to the south. So they stand on top of this, uh, well, she stands on top of this mountain and she creates a ladder of woven ropes and throws it down and Melkor is able to climb up and they look out from this place and they can see all the Valinor stretched out. Well, that's just unsettling. Giant spider on top of a mountain. Yeah. (laughs) Anybody listening, I do suffer from slight arachnophobia. (laughs) And I may have been known to keep spiders as pets from time to time. Um, In fact, my first tarantula was named (laughs) Ungoliant. You're a sick, sick man. (laughs) So, uh, meanwhile, it's a time of festival, and all of... uh, Valinor has been invited to come to this festival for the most part, right? Um, they've invited everyone to come to Taniquetil, uh to celebrate. And uh, th- this is because even though the seasons don't happen quite the way they do in Middle-earth afterwards, uh, Yavanna still sets time for the flowering and ripening of all things, and so they can still have these kind of seasonal festivals. And Yes, they know that Melkor has escaped, and that is something to be concerned about, but he's been gone for a while, we haven't heard anything about him, so we should come together and heal our wounds and, you know, make peace again. So they bid everyone to come to Taniquetil, where Manwe and Varda live, and the Vanyar come, uh, the High Elves, and the Noldor come from their city of Tyrion, and the Maiar come and the Valar are there, and it's all beautiful. The only elves that don't really come are uh, the Teleri, um, who are still in the Swanhaven in El Colande down by the eastern shore of Valinor. They don't come to the feast. Uh, they don't have as much to do with the other elves, to be honest. But all the other elves, the Maiar, the Valar, are gathered together. So you can imagine the city of the gods, Valmar, and the city of the elves, uh, or at least of the Noldor, Tyrion, are completely deserted at this point. Now, what's interesting is Feanor is also invited to come. Manwe himself commands Feanor to come. But Finwë, his father, uh, does not come, nor any of the other people who live with you know, Feanor's people in Formenos. And the reason Finway says he's not coming is because his son is still banished from Tyrion. He says, while the ban lasts upon Feanor, my son, that he may not go to Tyrion, I hold myself unkinged, and I will not meet my people. Good dad. And then when Feanor comes, he is not dressed for a party. Uh, He is not wearing, you know, jewels or uh, anything ornamental. And he is definitely not wearing the Silmarils because he intentionally is denying the sight of the Silmarils to any of the other elves or the Valar. 
but he comes before the throne of Monwe and he meets with his brother Fingolfin and uh, they make peace. And Fingolfin holds his hand out saying, I release thee, I remember no grievance. Feanor takes his hand in silence, but Fingolfin says, Half-brother in blood, full-brother in heart will I be. Thou shall lead, and I will follow. May no new grief divide us. Feanor says, I hear thee, so be it. But they did not know the meaning their words would bear. Most significant words there probably being, Thou shalt lead, and I will follow, which has an actual <laughs> direct um, way of playing itself out. So even as they're standing there, these two brothers, uh, before Manwe, this is the time when the two lights of the two trees is, uh, are mingling. This is where you know, one tree um, starts to fade and the other tree starts to bloom. And so, so there's this hour where the two trees kind of mingle their lights and it's an hour of twilight. And it's an eerie scene because there's this twilight across the land and Valmar is totally empty. Tyrion is totally empty. So Melkor and Ungoliant come in this moment like a shadow of a black cloud upon the wind. They come to the two trees and the unlight of Ungoliant rises up even to the roots of the trees. I'm going to be quiet for most of this because this is some of my favorite parts. <laughs> uh, Melkor brings a spear and with it he stabs the two trees to their core, wounds them deep, and their sap pours forth like blood and is spilled on the ground, and Ungoliant starts sucking it up. She goes from tree to tree and sets her black beak to the wounds until they are drained, and the poison of death that is in here, her goes into their tissues and withers them, root, branch, and leaf, and they die. And still she's thirsty. So remember those wells that Varda kept of the light that dripped from the two trees, which she, Varda, used to create the stars. Now Ungoliant goes to all those wells and drinks them dry, and she is swelling up at this point to a shape that is so vast and hideous that even Melkor is starting to be afraid. And just like Kevin Smith, Ungoliant went back to the well. So the great darkness falls on Valinor. And what's eerie, uh, I mean, the whole scene is eerie, but Varda is looking down from the high mountain where all the owls are gathering, and she sees this shadow soaring up in sudden towers of gloom. The city of Valmar, where all of the Valar live, had foundered in a sea of night. And soon enough, the shadow just keeps rising like waves until the only thing left is the holy mountain where they're all gathered, and it is standing alone like an island in a world that is drowned in darkness. All of the songs ceased. There's silence in Valinor. No sound can be heard except through the wind. On the wind, they can hear in the distance, through the pass of the mountains, the Teleri elves at the city of uh, the, the, the city of the Swans, the Swanhaven. Alqualande crying out, and it sounds like the cry of gulls. Um, they're associated, like the, they're the sea elves. They're associated with the sea, which to me is very creepy. Um, they just hear this sound of wailing coming through 
the darkness to this silent aisle under the sea of darkness. It's very uh, frightening image. It says, For it blew chill from the east in that hour, and the vast shadows of the sea were rolled against the walls of the shore, rolled over the city Alcolande. So Manwe on his high seat looks out, and his eyes pierced through the night until they saw a darkness beyond dark which they could not penetrate, huge but far away, and moving now northward with great speed, so he knows that Melkor has come and gone. They begin their pursuit, and the earth shakes beneath the horses of Orome, and the first light that returns to Valinor is the sparks flying off the hooves of Orome's horse. And as soon as they come up to the cloud of Ungoliant, the riders of the Valar are blinded and dismayed, and they're scattered, and they don't know <laughs> where they are, what's going on. Tolkis, you know, tries to charge after him, and he gets caught in like a black net, and he stands powerless, and he's just fighting the air. But when the darkness had passed, it was too late. Melkor had gone whither he would and his vengeance was achieved. I love that part. <laughs> I don't know why. I just do. It is It is something that's... This is another one of those scenes that I feel like I would not like to see filmed because it's huge in my imagination. And no, no matter how you filmed it, it would never be quite as like terrifying as it should be. Oh, no, for sure. Because like even if it was your project to film it would be what you envision but it wouldn't be what i envision mm -hmm. and if i were to do it it's the same problem it wouldn't be what you're envisioning and then you would also run into you know i mean granted we have more freedom now with all the cgi and everything but at the same time is it an overkill is it not looking real enough i mean there's always going to be something wrong and 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 that's why i always hate when they show you the monster mm -hmm. i mean that's why jaws worked so well you half that movie before you see the shark um jj uh, abrams did it with super eight you don't see the creature until nearly the end and when you do it's still shadowed and it's still left to your imagination for the most part um good filmmakers leave it up to your imagination just like good writers do that as well mm -hmm. and you're right you're absolutely right I, I i i don't want to see that in film because i think it would take away from it and i think that's why the books are almost always better than the films yeah i mean if it was done with a lot of love and if it if it really if there really was a way for a filmmaker to give the scope and the power of that scene i mean maybe limit it to the perspective of the elves alone, you know, like what they look out and see so that we don't quite see. Yeah. But then you're left <laughs> with like, well, what did everybody else see? You yeah. know, like this is, this is what the elves see, but what about what other people? There's always going to be something lacking. I don't care how oh, yeah. great of a filmmaker you but are. But part of, part of what could make it filmable is to intentionally limit the perspective so that we don't have to see the spider drinking the sap of the trees or know exactly what happened. All we have to see is a wave of darkness and some terrifying sounds and something dark on the horizon and everyone's saying. reaction, you know, yeah, that could be a saying. way to make it a little less, but I'm, I'm skeptical about the Valar ever appearing on screen anyway. Um, just because it would be something that 
the Valar are if any if there are any creatures if there are any beings in Tolkien's mythology that should probably be left to the imagination I feel like it's the Valar and I have seen really cool artwork that um you know gives the Valar each their own really specific kind of characteristics and they they would be really neat to see uh, in a film, but I feel like the Valar are one of those areas that so far for me has been untouchable. <laughs> I want to keep them in the realm of imagination because I want them to always be cooler than any depiction that you could make of them. The exception being like maybe every once in a while, like when Ulmo appears on the shore as like this giant creature god rising out of the waves like no that would be pretty cool to see in a film but i don't want to see like the council of the valar and have it be done poorly like a bunch of guys in costumes sitting on thrones in a circle you know like i want it to feel like i'm shooting back to the original clash of titans with (laughs) yeah right like sir sir uh lawrence of olivier playing zeus and just all these humans sitting around that were supposed to be gods and i mean like i love that movie that is definitely like what is the word i'm looking for like 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 a a secret love of mine you know a a guilty pleasure that's what i'm trying to say but at the same time that moment when you see you know all the all the greek gods of olympus just kind of people in togas i'm like (laughs) oh sweet extras from animal house right uh and now there are our mythological beings but yeah it does definitely it takes something away from that yeah okay well this wraps up our coverage of chapter eight of the darkening of valinor uh please tune in to our next episode uh where we'll be doing a multi-part uh coverage of chapter nine of the flight of the noldor and uh, as always, you know, make sure to follow us on our social media. You can find us on Facebook and Reddit and Twitter. Make sure to leave us a comment and let us know uh, your thoughts on the show, things you'd like to see in the future, questions you have. We've really been encouraged by all the feedback that you've given us and all the support. So we're really looking forward to our next episode. Please tune in for Chapter 9, The Flight of the Noldor. Noldor.